welcome to another episode of Adventuring Academy. I'm your humble Dutch master, Brendan Lee Mulligan. Oh, I am so excited today. This is College Humor's Vodcast, where we talk about all things tabletop and how to run adventures at your table for your friends. Today, our guest, my goodness, I couldn't be more excited. She has hosted so many things for Geek and Sundry, namely How to Play and Game the Game, runs the YouTube channel, The Good Time Society, where she serves as keeper for the Calyx, a Call of Cthulhu anthology series, and is a player in a Thunder, Gaia's Judgment, run by a friend of the show, Amy Vorpal, co-host of To Boldly Watch, esports reporter for Magic the Gathering Arena. She also plays Sophie Gray on South Park. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my friend and yours, Becca Scott! Uh, wow. Woo, the crowd goes wild. Brennan, what an introduction. I need to take a nap after hearing all of that. <laughs> it's, I, yeah. it's Again, all an earned introduction with your illustrious record, Ms. Scott. Um, I figure if you just keep adding stuff, people will think you're impressive because it's a long list, you know? You gotta get that. That's I, I'm right there with you. You gotta get that list long. That's why we do different names for all the seasons of Dimension 20. Obviously. One show, so many titles. Um, it's uh, IMDb's fault, really. There you go, exactly. Uh, uh, Becca, thanks so much for jumping on the show with us. We're so delighted to have you here. It is uh, my absolute pleasure. Uh, and our dropout fans may recognize Becca, also who we have performed in the same scene together from Ultra Mechatron Team Go. So uh, you you may, am I wrong? I yes. do. No, that I, is that is something that happened. Time is wibbly wobbly. Yeah. I almost had a heart attack where I was like, have I, I was done like, something wrong? No, 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 that was a super villain I was in the scene with, not you. <laughs> That's me under, I know. When I inhabit the character of Galatax, <laughs> I do get subsumed in the character. Um, okay. uh, no, but a tremendous, a tremendous amount of fun. There are so many hysterical, you were so funny in the dinner scene in Ultra Megatron Team Go. And I think there are a zillion outtakes from the, do you remember the all the like riffs we did in that dinner scene? Oh uh, man. I mean, I have trouble enough not breaking in general, but you just kill as Galatex because you do inhabit the character. It's a beautiful thing to watch. You do something yeah. so ridiculous and not, apologize for it in your performance, you know? <laughs> and I think that's what breaking comes from. It's like, we know I'm joking, right? It's hard. I think I think the only skill I have honed in my life is is uh, uh, not apologizing for doing something ridiculous. That's the only muscle I have in my body. That's a powerful uh, muscle. Hey, I you know what? Uh, the, the love and respect is reciprocated. Becca, I want to talk to you about something because we have a very cool opportunity on the vodcast today. Uh, we've talked about a lot of different topics on the VOD before. We're talking to someone who is a regular keeper in the Call of Cthulhu system, dealing in matters of eldritch horror. Um, Talk to us a little bit about how you got started with that game. And first of all, like your introduction to like tabletop in general and what eventually led you to wanting to be a horror storyteller. Oh goodness me. All right, well, I am an absolute expert on Call of Cthulhu 7th edition for the past uh, three and a half months. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, naturally, um, it's a skill that I have. So, oh, what 
drew me into Call of Cthulhu was guesting as a player on a Twitch channel called Stream of Blood. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Jared Logan. He's a writer around town oh. in all Hollywood here. And through some producer friends, I was asked to guest on the show and I loved it so much. I bought a Keeper rule book and my love was so palpable or they just like felt bad for me that they kept asking me back. And it was kind of like a anthology rotating players thing. But now I'm just a regular cast member on a show called the Neptune Society. And, Cause I was like, you can't get rid of me. And it worked. <laughs> Sometimes you just tell people, no, I'm coming back. And <laughs> that escalated into um, me wanting to, uh, so for Geek and Sundry, I used to be on a show called TBD RPG, where we would switch out the game we were playing and we would rotate which of our cast and, uh, players and and um, GMs was taken over for a couple weeks and through that I tried out a bunch of system we did a bunch of one shots we played a game called weave a lot which is like a very simple RPG game and that was my introduction to realizing it's not as scary as you think to run a game um, mm -hmm. and so basically being on stream of blood and having this background of wanting to like play with certain players I'd met over at geek and sundry uh, I smashed those things together and I was like we're doing it I'm pulling the trigger on this thing that I've wanted to do. It is the quarantine times, and so we have to do it from home, but I'm just gonna start running this game and see what happens. And uh, we just finished our seventh episode last night. Hell yes, yeah. Mazel Tov, and congratulations. That's oh, awesome. I know. Uh, he, um, so I love that. Where, what was your, um, uh, do you remember like what the track was from uh, into your first like nerdy forays into nerd culture? Because I think that's one of my favorite things is having like done many episodes of this show is how many like entry points where you start one hobby and suddenly you're you're playing board games, you're playing tabletop, you're going to conventions, you're doing cosplay, you're playing magic. What was your like doorway, your first doorway into nerdery? Um, and then eventually as someone who has truly made a career out of a vast array of nerdy interests, because you're all, you're like board games, video games, tabletop, you've done like so much stuff, reporting as a reporter for Magic the Gathering, which I have a box of Magic cards right over on the shelf over there. Like, Let's look at them. <laughs> That's what the show is. We just, oh, you remember this one? Nope. Okay, cool. Oh, you remember this one? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the question. Yes. Uh, that's a great question. I love this. Um, and I love asking people this question as well, because for me, it just started with a uh, God-given need to win, which is not what RPGs are about, but I am an extremely competitive person, and board games were a fixture in my house. Now, we got Catan later on, but it was mostly the basics. It was mostly a lot of monopoly, a lot of risk. Um, and my dad kind of instilled in us like, this is fun, we're counting, we're winning, we're competing, I'm destroying you and I don't feel bad about it. And so, you know, like most things, it's it's the nurture of our upbringing that makes us enjoy a thing, even if we deny that's why. And for me, um, I also love acting, studied acting in school, moved out to LA to be an actor. And then um, just sort of like fell into producing, fell into the right place, right time where I was in a position to pitch something to Geek and Sundry. And I said, I wanna do a board game show. I, I love board games. And I, at that time, knew a little bit about the big, big, deep 
never ending world of like boardgamegeek.com and 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 tabletop and board games but hadn't really dug in and and since then it's all I do uh, I just like I, I think my brain just kind of clicks with game mechanics but I have a very circuitous route to both Magic the Gathering and tabletop RPGs because I came from board games first and that um and it it didn't it took a while for me to tap into the fact that D&D was hitting this acting love and hitting this rules love. Um, but it's it's perfect and it fits and all those things are, are great. Um, but it is weird that I have played very few role-playing games that were not for some sort of digital show. Um, and one of like three D&D games I've been a player in, uh, like just sessions in general, was yours before um, day 20. You came over and did like a practice. Yeah, well, we were just doing, I mean, it was all proof of concept. We were doing, that was during a period of time. I had just been hired by College Humor. And well, I just been hired full time. Prior to that, Little I had did been- did they know you would someday come to rule. <laughs> I, yeah, here I am ruling in my apartment. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but the, uh, no, but you're absolutely right that we, this was prior to Dimension 20. This was like, uh, I had been working part-time as a question writer for Um Actually. I think that was the first time we met, actually. Well, it was either through, it might've been at some point in, because I think I knew, uh, either through Story Pirates in New York or possibly coming through here. But I think the first time we met was you as a contestant on them, actually, when I was writing the questions for the show. I was the, the you know, Wizard of Oz man behind the curtain. Um, uh, and I specifically asked for a lot of Dresden Files questions. Yes, yes. and you had to research that. <laughs> I had to go dive deep into Dresden Files questions. Well, that, that's because the thing, one of the things we do for, or, or I don't know if they still do, but one of the things we did for Unactually back in the day was, you know, like it, you want to do really hard questions, but you want to do them in um, genres and media that people know well. So the idea is like, um, if someone doesn't know the answer, they can still talk about the question. Whereas if it's just a piece of media that nobody has consumed, you're suddenly like, I have no frame of reference for what we're talking about. I so mean, we the got, hardest part is not being a contestant, but being a question writer on that show. It honestly, well, here's the thing is you, you, it really is hard to break your brain into the right shape to look for those questions because it's all, the research is staggering. Like the actual writing of the questions this is, I mean, this would be, because I feel like there's there's got to be a huge overlap between I'm um, actually fans of this. Also, you and I are, are kindred spirits here in terms of our hyper-competitiveness. Um, uh, uh, I don't know if this is true for you. I always like to say, for me, it's not that I love winning. I don't need to win. I'm not obsessed with winning. I hate losing. And that, <laughs> so, the if the activity has and everybody wins condition, I'm the happiest I can be. I want to share first place with everybody in the world. I will not accept second. Um, Ooh. So I don't know if that's the same or similar to your hyper-competitiveness. It has changed. So the show I did for a long time at Geek and Sundry was a, a playthrough of tabletop games called Game Game. Uh, you know, how many times can you say game in a day is my question. And I tried to fulfill that through the show. And... I was a very bad loser in earlier episodes. And if I go back and watch, which 
it's always hard to do, always hard to watch yourself. But if I go back and watch, I can really feel the progression of me being a more gracious loser at a certain point and learning to celebrate other people's wins. Because uh, sometimes you'll watch it back and be like, wow, I was violently angry about that loss. And that's not a quality of a good host. I need to make people enjoy being on my show and feel like even if they lost, that's okay. Not not score shaming people. And uh, I, it, I won't say I will ever not try my hardest and be absolutely cutthroat, mm -hmm. but I will also try to graciously admit defeat. I do. Well, I think that's the thing, right? Is that it's it's very like humility and graciousness and defeat is a necessary component of being a sports person like. Uh, however, I will say that I had the reverse experience of the original times I was on competitive shows and dropout and stuff like that. I was just so Mr. Happy to be here, gang. Uh, uh, right. and, was, and was so like, oh my God, I have a job. Like, <laughs> just thrilled beyond measure. Like, oh, I will be able to start paying down my enormous medical debt. You know, like that and kind you, of stuff. And then you but, say, wait, I'm fucking Brennan Lee Mulligan. <laughs> Nobody gets one up on me. I know well, who yes. I am. I'm the king of candy. But that's, well, but, but there's, here's <laughs> the thing is in terms of score shaming, I didn't begin any of that. Mr. Michael Trapp, uh, 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 began my transformation, you know, like they say, like Batman press is like the Joker happened because of Batman. Mm. It was Mike Trapp started being like, what is it, Brennan? And I would be like, okay, if you, if, if I'm the, if the monster is the role I am meant to play, then I shall play it. Um, what are we talking about? Oh, we're talking about, um, actually, um, uh, uh, in terms of the question writing, it's a very funny thing because I, the, the honest to God truth is I know that I have beaten people on that show that deserved to win more than I did and who, um, who earnestly know more than I do. I'm a dumb, dumb, dummy. But they and forgot to say the one rule, which is start with um, actually. Say um, actually. I think the main the main reason, listen, I have like, if you look at my points, I feel like there's a huge asterisk next to it because I have stumbled my way into a lot of answers. And the reason for that being that there's an element to, of uh, to playing that game that as a writer I have insight into, which I know other people aren't considering, right? So when other people get the I'm actually question, you know, it's like, did Gandalf do X, Y, or the other thing? And they'll go like, boop, boop, and go like, I'm um, actually, it was Saruman. They'll, they'll pick some kind of trivia thing. And the, the thing, the advantage that writing you know, a hundred plus, two hundred plus of these questions gave me, is I is that I know where to look in the question for mm -hmm. the thing that's wrong. It's it's not that I know more about nerd stuff than you know half the people that have played the show. It's just that um, in my head I go trap doesn't put it in the show unless it's funny. So the thing you're looking for isn't trivia you are looking for the thing that could produce a joke to talk about. So it's, Ooh. so mm -hmm. the next time you're on, you, there's your, there's, and for anyone who plays along at home, that is the real, the real trick to, um, actually from a writer's perspective is always knowing where to look in the question and knowing like, yeah, it's not gonna be, 
the answer couldn't be something that is incorrect in a way that would leave the audience going, huh, okay. Like, yeah, well, it wasn't Gandalf, it was Saruman, interesting. No, 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 it's gotta be something weird or absurd or funny. So you're just, there was one question about a dinosaur that I truly didn't know, where it was like, it was like, Denver the dinosaur like uses magic to disguise, uses like, like dresses in a backwards baseball hat and sunglasses and due to a magic spell goes to high school, had never seen the show before and was like, I'm um, actually, it's not magic. And it's like, and Trap was like, yes, that's correct. Because it's like, what would a show do that would be a super funny thing for Trap to talk about? Having a dinosaur go to high school that's just a brontosaurus wearing a baseball hat and all these <laughs> kids are like, check out this freshman, right? Um, yeah, I have a similar example of a question. I don't think you wrote it. I think it was in a later um, actually season, but it was about the Dresden Files, which is a series by Jim Butcher that I'm obsessed with. And it was a question about uh, fire-breathing monkeys and they're chasing them out at the beginning of this one book out of this abandoned warehouse. And I buzz it and I'm like, I know this because I've listened to these audiobooks multiple times. I've read the books, I'm obsessed. I can't figure it out. Like I'm thinking about how he's running and the monkeys are shitting in their hand and throwing the flaming poo and I don't know what the answer is. And he was like, no, you, you literally just said it. I said fire breathing. I was like, oh yeah, it, it must be the fact that the monkeys instead shit into their hand and threw the flaming shit. Um, but it, it was definitely, um, you know, the unexpected part of the question. Yeah, there you go. It's a very. I think there's a. There are a. There's a lot of game strategy uh, that does end up boiling down to something like that. Of like, yeah, it's like theoretically you could know it all, but really it's better just to understand how the questions work, right? Yeah. Um, Which uh, is why I felt I was so cool going in there. I was like, oh, I know. I'll break apart the question and just try and guess every section of it. But that's yeah. an even better strategy. And now I'm equipped. Now, there you go, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's the thing is I see great people go on that show all the time who I know know it, but it's it's summoning that, and there's a big difference between knowing something and being able to summon it up and find the joke in the question, et cetera. Um, oh, love it. I haven't, I haven't gone deep on um actually in so long. I love it. time. Shout out to Mike Trapp, one of the best shows of all time. Love um actually. Um, uh, I feel like I feel like uh, Sam and Bridgman or everybody are watching this like yes, good synergy, intershow yes, synergy. Yes, um, the counts up. Yes. Uh, uh, I love it. Um, so uh, what was I gonna say? Um, have you ever played Call of Cthulhu? This is your I show. Have. I stole it. I asked the question. No, it's great. I have played Call of Cthulhu and really loved it. What drew you to the game originally? Um, this was your question, and then I already felt like I talked too much that I didn't answer all the parts of your earlier question, which is um, the D100 system. It's such <gasps> a nerdy response, but I just really love how the mechanics work. Um, and I really am a fan of horror. I mean, I, I, I was not particularly knowledgeable about Lovecraft specifically and cosmic horror monsters, and now I've really dived into that bestiology and find it very fascinating. Um, and But um, uh, I, I just really like the system of having 
a tremendous amount of skills. I think it's 40 something different skills and they each have a percentage in them and you may allocate points to that. And there was something about it that I like when the character sheet gives you an idea of how to play the character. And if I have someone with sleight of hand and lock picking and dancing, well, I know exactly who Ruby Sunday is, you know, like <laughs> I like when the sheet makes itself. I love that Ruby Sunday. That's so good. Um, almost said Tuesday and I was like, no, 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 no. Here's my chance to show what an incredible GM I am that I can make <laughs> up an NPC name on the spot. Oh, I love it. Um, uh, well, that's so that's awesome. So, so I love that. First of all, shout out to just caring about the mechanics because I feel like there is a tremendous amount that like is fun about the systems. I do love that part of Cthulhu. And the thing that Cthulhu does do, in my opinion, is it really makes you um, have a set of character abilities that you are interested in while still having this thing of like, oh, if we fight some kind of elder being, we're toast. Like, <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, my archaeology is going to come in really handy when some... <laughs> geometrical horror dog slinks out of the eighth axis of reality and like unravels me into a singularity. Yeah, I'm gonna be really glad about my, you know, like drive percentile dice at that point. Yeah. Well um, just to piggyback off piggyback off that, it's the idea that often you have to find a way to outsmart it. So many times when I've been a player, I've thought I have absolutely no idea what to do because I can't fight this thing. So you have yeah. to really look for other ways to deal with the situation or just run. And I think that's especially fun. It just gets your heart rate going. Oh, I love it. Um, so uh, uh, talk to me a little bit about um, what you, so when you got drawn to Call of Cthulhu as the system, you've been running this for, for a little while now. Um, I'm still very new. <laughs> I will, nah, uh, with that uh, caveat. A hundred percent. Is there something, so the mechanics obviously have attracted you about this. Um, how have you taken, because obviously like you have a background in acting and there's a lot of like performance and stuff like that. Um, uh, uh, how do you feel about the horror aspect of those games. Is that something that you immediately embraced? Or do you find, because I think one of the things about Call of Cthulhu to me is that game has a very clear tone that it wants you to play. Do you find yourself playing that tone most times? Or are you making the game your own kind of and have, and sort of like going all over the place with, with that like Lovecraft mythos tone? Totally, it has a clear tone. And I try my damnedest to keep to it. And yet, if you're really listening to your players and enjoying your players, you have no say over the tone. You can keep, which I do, keep trying to bring it back, keep trying to get under their skin. And some players have a character that has set its own agenda to have fun, and you can't mess with that. And that's that's the joy of it, too, is... It's I, I'll prepare so much and then realize I I know what NPCs they may encounter, what locations I want them to find. But at the end of the day, I have no control over what happens. I vibe with that a lot. And I think that there's an, like, I'll be honest too. 
as someone who who has like very long running home games that I love and has also played a lot of casual one shotty kind of things, tone is the first thing out the window when I get the feeling that no one else is really valuing the game to the level I am. Like I think a little bit in that things where someone's like, there's a difference between like close friends, I want to start a game. It's a homebrew setting I've crafted over the past year. I haven't shown it to anyone yet. You kind of feel honored and you're like, oh shit, okay, yeah. Well, well, let me uh, let me start thinking of some character ideas or, or I'll wait until sessions, you know. But if someone's like, hey, we got a couple hours to kill, want to, want to do this thing? There's always that element of, if I can tell that the GM is kind of half-assing it, I always go straight for comedy. And that's mm. always been my, because I've never had someone that wanted to run a long running a Cthulhu campaign. It's always been sort of one shoddy. I always have a hard time like not going to comedy when I can tell that, that the, that the room's a rental, so to speak, right. Yes. That we're not going to live here. Uh, the one time I played Call of Cthulhu, I ended up playing, there was a, the whole way the person explained it to me was like, was like, because the GM literally said like, I doubt we'll be able to finish this module today. We only have until 6 p.m. and we have no plans to ever get together again. So there's this weird thing at the top of like, probably we won't finish a story today, gang. And so we're sitting down doing this session of like, um, it was some some modules that are in the sort of like, you know, in Arkham, Massachusetts somewhere. And there, the person was like, so you have to be very careful because character, like, characters have to guard themselves against like the horrors and madness of the other whatever. And so I made a character that was just a guy who was so incredibly haunted that the joke was, <laughs> this guy's a goner, right? So it was like the very first scene and someone's like, hey, Max, uh, the car's broken down outside. Can you get a tire wrench? And me being like, what? <laughs> like and you're like oh we're like no way this dude we're not we're not gonna make it down the road as soon as the first as soon as the first weird what is it what are they called you know those squid dogs or whatever pops yeah, out of something squid dogs. squid dogs uh that's oh a uh, shagoth yes and thank you yeah um <laughs> i feel yeah, that's the character I want to play in a Cthulhu game is someone who calls them squid dogs. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> These so, squid dogs are coming at me. I'll tell you, boss, some squid dogs is mad as hell outside. Well, so I love that. Can I tell you a secret, several secrets? One, yes. I'm still learning. So I've only been running pre-written scenarios because I feel comfortable with that. And I feel like it's an easy way in, and I know I'm not married to it, but I really like having something to study that's not directly out of my brain, even though I have come up with some campaigns for one shots that I like made up myself before um, that weren't in any system at all. Um, and that, that I, so I know that I can do it, but I just wanted to honor what Call of Cthulhu is and to ramp myself up, I'm just doing scenarios, but I have never played in any role-playing game whatsoever that was serious. I mean, because I've only done them mostly in a one-shot setting and the way you just described it, I've never not wanted to like, for lack of a better term, blow my wad in that session, you know? Yeah. You wanna do something spectacular and if you die or you're horribly mangled, then that's a memorable thing that happened. I think that 
um, having mostly played games on a webcam, um, you just kind of think, well, what's the most interesting choice for viewers? What's not, not what's good for my character or the longevity of my character. So it is totally different to do these two different styles of play. Well, that's, I think that's a beautiful point. And I think that actually gets to something that is very serious at the heart of these games, that they run on a spectrum and what you communicate as being the shelf life of this story does say a lot. Like I've gone on record before and said that, uh, you know, I have a lot of people tweet or chat on the Discord and say like, I'm thinking about running a one shot for my friends. And I always tell people like, okay, you know that running a one shot is way harder than just running a session, right? Like one shot, the idea of a one shot meaning I'm gonna give you the beginning, middle, end of a story in a single four hour period. That is a feat. That's not easier, that's harder. God, that, what am I doing to myself, Brennan? <laughs> that's all I've ever done and it's a lot of work. <laughs> Becca, you're doing something really impressive. Listen, like, let me be very clear. The hardest thing about Dimension 20 is that our seasons have a set number of episodes as we yeah. take off. So we start shooting episode one and I go like, all right, Mulligan, you got 18 episodes to bring this plane down on the runway. Like that's it. And even with 18 episodes, it's stressful, right? Like the idea of not, the idea of not finding those things organically and it changes how you play, I find. Um, we say a thing in improv all the time about that idea of like, one of the re things I always say in improv is like, your we're only gonna know this character for two and a half minutes. So we absolutely should be seeing them in the moment where they finally pop off and tell their boss how they feel or confess their love to their romantic interest. Like improv, it's like the candle burns so hot and so fast, we only want the best moments. And in your scene, you should, you should adjust your impulses to be like, today's the day. This moment is the moment, right? We're not, it's not slice of life. This is the only remarkable moment supercut in all of these characters' lives as we go through the set, right? Um, and I think what's interesting is, I think that, like you're saying, like you're, cause you're not doing a long running campaign, right? You, or it's anthology. No, it's so it's, it's um, rotating players, but we do a two episode arc. Of three Very hours each. Fun. So like six hours with my players. Do you find your players taking those big swings because they can feel the clock behind them? Oh yeah. But also I'm bringing in people that have been doing this sort of one shot on the internet <laughs> for a while and um, have felt that, that like, oh, I gotta explode kind of vibe. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very interesting. I think the clock does play a big role. And I've had friends talk to me as well about like, um, talking about like Dungeons and Dragons kind of like primacy in the tabletop space and just having sort of interesting academic conversations about like, why is that? What is it about D&D &D that has made it this? Is it just this? First the one first? there. <laughs> yeah, just like, like market share, progenitor status, whatever. And that's definitely a big part of it. One of the things I think you can also point to with D&D &D, though, is this only D&D &D players have this kind of malaise around campaigns fizzling, where they go like, huh, man, like my character only got to fourth level. Like there is something about that 20 level progression. And mm. that truly 
it it takes you like to it's this the game kind of it's kind of like a brilliant i don't know marketing strategy to be like oh the highest level is 20 and it takes a zillion krillian xp points to get there which it doesn't tell you overtly that you're supposed to keep playing but there is this weird implicit thing where you're like gotta keep going i don't have ninth level spells yet like i gotta keep coming back um and I wonder, this is the, again, this is very like, like fear. I don't have data to back this up. But when I think about the amount of long running D&D campaigns I've heard about versus e games that are equally as fun, you know, but that don't necessarily have these like longevity mechanisms built into them. I wonder if that whole leveling up thing is a part of this weird subliminal messaging of like, keep playing, keep coming yeah. back. You're not, you're not high level yet. What are the psychological principles that are like you hitting the button for the pellets and each time the XP comes out, it feeds your need to level up and your competitive instinct of like, I would like to gain and accumulate, which is such a human deplorable trait of ours. <laughs> yeah. How, Let me hoard these XP. Truly, how much has our acquisitiveness destroyed us? Um, uh, I think it makes people insanely jealous of people like you who've had campaign campaigns going on for years when they're just trying to get their friends together. Just trying to get the gang back together. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, I, 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 um, what I love about, I think that again, I think that there's reasons that D and D has been so primary in the tabletop space that are just like market share, name recognition, you know, the kind of branding stuff that's sort of easy to understand. But I think you're right. That idea of XP, of leveling up, this idea that they're like, oh, you'll die if you fight a dragon now. You've got to fight all these goblins and then these hobgoblins and then these gorgons and then these vampires and work your way up over time uh, to get to that point, right? But um, with something like this, uh, like Call of Cthulhu, I also have just sort of noticed this, this interesting element of like, what does longevity look like here? Um, and all this came back again around to talking about like, uh, what does it take to make people take the game seriously? Mm. Hiring professional actors is one, one way to do it. Um, but I think the other thing too is, um, there are there are interesting things related to uh, a game's ability to be like, hey, you're gonna be here for a while, relax. With something as lethal and deadly as Call of Cthulhu, do you sense uh, uh, from your players either trepidation because the game is so dangerous, or is there kind of a recklessness compared to other games? Because you've obviously played D&D &D as a PC, mm -hmm. like, um, do you find that players in a specifically horror game become more or less reckless given that genre change? Yeah, oh, absolutely. So I think players come into it with the same attitude as in any game of I have the plot armor and I'm safe. And then the moment they take damage in their first combat is when people start getting a little upset. You see it like, wait, no, that was half my XP, my HP in that single blow. And you're like, oh. 
Well, for Constitution, you might be knocked out. And I kind of delight in watching the rise out of people. It's not necessarily that I love to torture my players, but I do love watching that moment of getting them to deeply care about this page in front of them. And the consequences are much more deadly. It is interesting. And I think maybe D&D has something to just the shared universal language of getting to the space first, where we all know what a gnome is, what a rogue is, what a cleric is. There's this language that you have to I mean, honestly, I still do it. I'm like, okay, so basically um, you're going to get a bonus die, which is kind of inspiration or whatever. Yeah, um, sure. You have to refer to what made it in the space first and was the most known and is the thing that people can reference. Um, but yeah, there is definitely a shift in players. And going back to shaping tone, it's interesting how if one player chooses to make a very comedic choice overall with their character, then the other players have permission to do so as well. Not that it's a bad thing. I mean, as long as everyone's having fun, the goal achieved. But it does, like, I, there was one game where I was able to really scare my players, and I saw that they were really feeding off this haunted house that they were moving through, and they really were hesitant to even make any actions. And I wow. know them as as people and as performers that they're not hesitant people. Yeah. But I just happened to help them shape their characters in a way that fit the setting instead of, like, having a showgirl and uh, a, a child in adult's clothing, um, which is what we did last night, uh, being the ones trying to solve a crime uh, for some reason, having to like explain the ridiculous circumstances to off the bat, um, to having kind of like uh, setting the tone in a gentle way that is like, you're not safe. And you need to be careful with every step that you take, because if you open the wrong door, you may immediately die. But sometimes people don't really, they think, okay, okay, sure, 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 it's horror. Um, but until they really get that first beating, they don't really understand how serious the rules are. That is so well put. And I think that, yeah, you, you definitely see that horror on people's faces. They realize like, oh, my character, this is not theoretical. My character could die, right? Um, uh, and I also don't think it's 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 bad to relish in that. Like people go to haunted houses for reasons. Scaring people is fun, and getting scared is fun. I like getting scared, and I like scaring. That's a pleasurable activity. So that moment where you get to go mwahaha, and your friends go <laughs> no, is you know it's a game. It's why we do it. We want to feel these feelings. Um, uh, uh, I was also around Halloween as we're recording this, and I'm like, I miss haunted houses. Um, oh, I know. We tried doing a drive-through one. Not the same. Not the same. No, the same. they tried. They really tried. Oh, terrible. <sighs> um, well, dang. Um, but I think that the <laughs> mild tangent, uh, old friend of mine, uh, a great improviser in New York named Chet Siegel, uh, uh, go check out her work uh, for people that are watching this podcast, uh, had one of the funniest things I ever heard, which was we went to this uh, haunted hayride up in upstate New York called the Headless Horseman Haunted Hayride. It's like number one in the country. It's incredible, incredible, incredible haunted hayride. Uh, and it was so funny because nothing was really getting to her until the headless horseman showed up and it's this dude riding this huge black stallion and he's got a flaming pumpkin and he's charging over this hilltop silhouetted in the moonlight and you're like how they get the moon there you know like <laughs> it's incredible but she like grabbed my arm and i was like shit what the what the fuck is going on and she was like look and i was like yeah the headless horseman is scary it's the he's the titular character and she was like no the horse and i was like what and she went the horse 
doesn't know it's working at a hayride. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of my favorite utterances a person's ever done of like, I'm scared of the horse because the horse isn't an actor. Um, (laughs) Did she have a fear of horses? No, just that the horse was going right for us. It was like, <laughs> bruh, bruh, bruh. and it's like, yeah, unless that guy stopped that horse. It's done this before. Of course, but I think she <laughs> trusted the humans more than the horse. And maybe that's on that's, her at the end of the day. That's her mistake. I <laughs> trust the human more than a horse. Um, so I think that's, that's uh, uh, going back to the idea of like how fragile that tone can be. Um, what do you do? So here's here's the big question, right? Here, I think it's, this is the six was it six million hundred thousand dollar question. Here's the expensive question: <laughs> How do you find that because Cthulhu is an even more deadly game? And I think this is probably true for any kind of high lethality. It could be something where lethality is a certainty, like 10 candles. Oh, it God, could... I've played. No, no. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, it could be something like, um, or or just like you're doing a grim dark D&D campaign where you're saying like, hey, this is not balanced challenge rating wise, right? When you introduce an element of lethality, do you find that your players don't commit as hard, and I'm kind of diagnosing myself here, don't commit as hard because they they get flinchier about the pain of losing their character, right? Like, have you ever perceived that, that people are like, well, I'm almost certainly gonna die, so I shouldn't fall in love with this character that much? Or are there any things that you do to make sure that people do feel attachments to these characters, even with these heightened stakes? Um, so that they are experiencing the full gamut, right? Because in the couple horror things that I've run, I have seen people opt for that comedic tone, much like I did, as a defense mechanism to be like, well, if you're going to kill my character, I'm going to make him a joke character, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, have you perceived that? Uh, uh, and if you haven't perceived, whether, whether you have or haven't, is there anything that you think people could do to combat that at their tables? Oh, that's really interesting. I, when I think of how I would want to answer this question, it's more as a player. Um, Because in Stream of Blood, where I first experienced Call of Cthulhu and fell in love, I played a character that died. And it was horrendous for me because I had fallen in love with her. But I think, I think that's something that can't be taught. I think you kind of have to accept what your players want to do and whether yeah, whether that affects them. But for me, every character I ever make, I want to be as much in love with as I possibly can. And sometimes you're just trying to change up a choice you've made previously and play something different. And uh, that's its own game. But I mean, the real fun of, of playing games to me is is diving in absolutely as hard as I can to the point of view of the character. And in a particular scenario, uh, a, a romance novelist named um, um, Alma Ramosarano de Galicia. She was on a, a whaling vessel and dove in 
um, after a great old one that really looked like an old whale. And, you know, with a knife between her teeth, she thought she could fight this thing. And I think that part of the satisfaction of getting really close to dying and not is that the dice could go your way. You know, yeah. you could get that nat 20 or that, uh, you know, nat one in Call of Cthulhu because you're trying to roll low on your percentile dice. And there's the most amazing, like, and the unlikeliest of scenarios occurs and we have to describe what happens. And I think that it kind of depends on that, not the character, but the player's risk tolerance and avoidance level yeah. um, in general. Uh, I love that and i think that's that can be a hard thing for people but to to not you know this is probably just good life advice to not keep your heart guarded but to let those walls down to embrace the possibility and again in games like cthulhu the increased probability that you will experience loss or suffering or fear or whatever uh and still find a way to love your character anyway um better know. to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all Hell yeah! Ooh. And with that, with with that wonderful the words from the bard, uh, uh, we uh, uh, let's see here. Um, we got some awesome questions. Uh, uh, so let's uh, let's go ahead and jump into some questions from our Discord friends. Uh, this first one comes to us from Scrappy Sea Slug. Thanks, Scrappy Sea Slug. Uh, hey, Becca. You've said before that you're a pretty competitive person. Has that ever become an issue in role-playing where you try and win, so to speak? And in general, do you all have any recommendations for dealing, uh, dealing with folks who are trying to win potentially against other players? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> my advice for players that are trying to win is beat them. Ooh. Uh, no, uh, that's a lie. Um, uh, this is very interesting. Well, I think that w winning is is an interesting is an interesting like thing here because obviously, I don't think it is wrong to play a game in an optimized way. Like trying to ha like, I will cop to this and say when I am playing a character, I am usually bending my efforts as a player to use it, my knowledge of the game to have the character succeed at what they're trying to do, right? Um, when I'm playing NPCs, that's obviously not the case, but when I'm playing a player, I'm using my knowledge of the game to have my character be effective. Now, I will say that I don't play that often, and the last couple of characters I've played have been very competent, depending on the tone. If I was playing a character, if I was playing a character that didn't always try their hardest and didn't know what they were doing, I might play differently. But generally speaking, I like to play characters that are heroic and that know what they're doing and that are competent and effective. Um, so I think that there's nothing wrong with someone attempting to overcome the obstacles as effectively as possible. Um, so I'm trying to think of what win could mean. If by <laughs> win you mean like any any form of winning that like belittles or hurts the other players is obviously right out. Like that's obviously not acceptable. Um, but I would, I also would just, I would question 
uh, where you try and win. Do you have any? Uh, I, look again. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to win as long as it's not eclipsing enjoyment of the game, right? Like, if a person is trying to win in such a way that anytime someone tries to role play, they're like, um, you talking to your dad doesn't get us more treasure, buddy. Like, <laughs> that's obviously, you know, PU. We don't like that. Um, uh, I don't know. Becca, how do you, how do you find yourself managing the, like, acting impulse with the impulse to, like, I think correctly the impulse that is also fun about these games, which is like solving problems and overcoming challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I wanna answer it as a GM and as a player. I think as a GM, there's a fine line between um, granting your players their wishes and going too easy on them. Because you don't, as an improv, you don't want to say no, you wanna say yes and, and you want to lift up their ideas and say that's fun. But if they're saying, okay, well, I just uh, float on a magical balloon away, you say, no, where'd you get that magical balloon? You can't just do that. You have to, you can't use a fast talk role when it's clearly a persuade. And uh, <laughs> you know, you have to like, put them within the box where they have the opportunity to succeed, but not let them run away with it because Ultimately, players like children want to be disciplined and told, you can't do that, but I'll tell you what you can do. And then as a player, the definition of winning to me is having a crazy idea that's not just I slash at the thing with my sword, that is a plan that may be harebrained and ridiculous, but if it works, it's gonna look so cool. And to me, that win is impressing the GM or the other players and having them say, oh, yeah, you could try that, okay. And kind of thinking of something outside of the box. That's what's winning to me in a role-playing game. And, uh, well, I don't wanna end it on a low note, but. I have, as a player, had like one experience that stuck out to me where I thought I came up with a really cool thing and the GM said, no, I don't think your character would do that. I think so-and-so's character would do that. What? And it broke my heart oh my into God. a billion pieces. That's ghoulish. <laughs> I hate that. But it's also, it's a lot of pressure to be, um, you know, like creating something on the fly and thinking on your feet and thinking about t spinning 10 different plates and thinking what the next scene will be and how you're gonna bring this one to a close. And sometimes you may not know that you're doing having that effect on someone. So I think that there's the fine line as a GM or a keeper or a DM that you want to both reward your players for creativity and let them enjoy their own fun and also stay within the world you've created. I love that. I think that's right on the money. And again, like you're saying, these games often don't have win conditions. It's actually one of the things I've often said in terms of like, is D&D &D a game or is it something else? I kind of slot a lot of these into something else because I'll often, not that all games need a win or lose condition, but I'll often be like, this seems a lot more like a collaborative story writing exercise with a kind of mini game baked into it mm -hmm. than it does, you know, it's it's got more in common with a writer's room than it does with like a game of chess, right? Um, uh, I think that's a very real part of it. And I think that um, the, the kind of dopamine structures of how we give ourselves those pellets while we are playing 
do it's like we are getting different kind of rewards in different places. And I think failure can feel amazing when it feels like a perfect turn of the story. Yes. That being said, I think you also, as a GM, do need to read your players and be like, are they getting frustrated with their lack of ability to do stuff, right? Uh, and occasionally, th that is something I think you have to manage of like, sometimes the resistance needs to push back even harder if they're succeeding too much to kind of like knock them back on their ass to have them suddenly go like, okay, cool. It's still a fight. It's still exciting. There's still a chance we won't make it. Right. Um, because zero resistance doesn't feel like anything uh, versus you're going too hard on them and they're beginning to get frustrated and sad and upset. So I think that, uh, that again, that like idea of winning, yeah, it doesn't really exist in tabletop because there's, you're never going to win D and D nor Cthulhu, nor World of Darkness, nor, you know, any number of a million awesome indie games, but um, you're never going to win the game, but there will be moments of failure or success throughout uh, that I think- Isn't this can... a metaphor for life? Oh, Ugh. Mwah. beautiful, I love it. Um, hell yeah, uh, this next one comes to us from Bobo. Thanks, Bobo. Um, hey, Becca and Brennan, big fan of you both. How has having careers centered around public performances of your passion for TTRPG's board games affected your actual love of the hobby when not performing? Do you find it hard to turn off that performance switch when just playing with friends? Uh, do you find yourself less excited to play for yourself since the thing you do for fun is also your job? Well, what a conscientious and kind-hearted question, Bobo. I don't think uh, Bobo wants to know. <laughs> you look behind just... the curtain, buddy. What if I just looked up and just started full crying and a little <laughs> bit of blood came out of my nose and I was like, I haven't slept in months. I need help, please. I don't want to play anymore. They keep saying I have to play. No. Um, don't steal my answer. <laughs> don't steal my answer. Uh, well, I don't want to answer for Becca, but no, I'll go ahead. Uh, no, but uh, 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 I'll just go ahead and say that um, First of all, I don't play differently at home than I play for Dimension 20. That's just how I like to play. Um, I like to do voices and have exciting stuff happen. I guess I'm I guess I'm a little more relaxed in my home games because we're not on the clock. So I'm not like clock watching as much. I might be a little bit less, you know, having the hammer come down to like end scenes and move on to the next thing. But um I still love home games. No, that it hasn't dulled the hobby at all for me. It's I still love the hobby. Um, I the and truth be told, let's be real. Like as you get older, your opportunities for life to kind of distract you from this hobby increase. I am grateful that my career has allowed me to do the thing I love for a living, and that I get to play all this D and D. Uh, because, you know, as you get older, campaigns fizzle, people, you know, get busy with work and stuff like that. So no, there's, there's not a lot of burnout on my end. It's mostly just gratitude and still loving the game. I definitely, I definitely say like play fewer home games than I used to, but not that many less, you know, I wasn't playing that. I had my sort of long home game and that's kind of it. Um, but like, you know, uh, the home games like with the other Dimension 20 cast, like a lot of those are on hiatus, as you might imagine, because we play Dimension 20 now. Um, uh, that's my answer, but I don't know if that's the same answer for Becca. 
Oh gosh, I don't know what's insightful or inspiring about the truth of it, which is I um, have so little time to play games that are off stream right now. Um, and it's also because I choose to fill a lot of my time with live streaming of both Magic the Gathering Arena, as well as I play tabletop simulators on the weekends on stream. And I've just like, now that I've started sharing all of these experiences with the community, I kind of like, don't otherwise. I'm either like asleep or watching a baking show. Uh, <laughs> you know? But I think that I do feel that bleed. Um, specifically, I'm thinking pre-COVID times, uh, playing board games. Um, because I'm so used to explaining them and playing a hosty role when I play board games, that when I'm playing in a home setting, I have to consciously tell myself to shut up and let someone else explain the rules because it, I do have this instinct that kicks in of like, and go. Um, <laughs> and I, I wish I could say, I think it is a goal to not have a transition in the way that I am um, when I'm on camera, when I'm off camera. For one, I, I mumble a lot more off camera. <laughs> I try to enunciate, but um yeah, I think that uh, what comes natural to you is a very enviable skill of being completely yourself when when you're also on. Yeah, I, well, I, I I think that that's an interesting element to all this as well, which is that like, um, like you're saying, the there's yeah, I, I don't I don't feel very fake when I'm on. Right, like when I'm performing, it's a you're getting a pretty honest approximation of me. I, again, like I don't do, I'm not like speaking from the diaphragm when I'm home all day. I'm not like walking out in the morning and being like, "Hello, Izzy and Metallico, how's the apartment doing?" Like I'm not <laughs> doing that. But um, personality-wise, and in terms of like my energy level and stuff like that, I, I it's it's pretty close. It's pretty close to to how that goes. Um, but again, yeah, I've never I, seen you not be Brennan I, in a, a social setting and uh, watching content from dropout setting. Uh, stability and continuity. That's what you come here for. Um, <laughs> so. Oh, I do want to uh, second what you said about gratitude that mm. we even get to freaking play games. Ooh, look at me censoring myself. Fucking play games. <laughs> it's hard. It's a practice skill. Um, to get to play games for a living is an absolute blessing and I'm grateful for it every day because even when I'm tired and I think, oh gosh, I said I'd do this thing and I gotta go do the thing. As soon as you start playing a game, you're just in the game. Yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it is very, listen, I like, like shout out to self care. Yes, to taking care of yourself. Yes, to preserving yourself and not doing burnout. And that's all stuff that is true and real and good. Also, if, you know, 25-year-old Brennan, who was broke and missing teeth and cleaning the gunk out of bar mats with a piping hot hose of hot water at 3 a.m., could peer through the, the misty veils of the future to see Brennan in his 30s being like, well, being a dungeon master is so hard. I don't like regular D&D &D as much anymore. He would leap through time and kick my ass 
all of these shiny new teeth would be punched out of my head by myself. So I owe it to hungry Brennan from the past to appreciate what is real now. Oh, um, yeah. When working at a coffee shop and leaving in my lunch break to drive to Santa Monica for a commercial audition I didn't get and then go back to making people's coffee, don't miss it. Don't miss it. <laughs> uh, uh, hell yes. Um, uh, this next question comes to us from Bert from Ohio. Hey, Bert from Ohio. Um, uh, I now know that this is a joke. There's a meme about Bert from Ohio because this was made up by Brian Murphy on a different thing, and I didn't get the joke the other time, but I get the joke now. <laughs> um, fostering group chemistry. How can a new DM tease out what makes magic moments for a particular party when they're engaged, but sessions still feel lukewarm? Is the answer improv lessons? Um, <laughs> No. Uh, yeah, well, you know, they don't, they, <laughs> maybe, maybe don't hurt, maybe they don't hurt. They don't um, hurt. Uh, so, God, magic moments. That's a tall order to put on yourself. I mean, the, I think the only thing I can really say here is just practice, right? Um, like, like, you, the, the serotonin rush you will get when you do that plot twist, that villain reveal, that cool monster, that magic item that makes your players go, what, oh, whoa. When you do that, the rush you feel will rewire your brain like a pig smelling truffles. You will just seek those moments out over and over again. So I like think practice, you go, how do I get them to make that gasping noise again? I need that noise. Give me that noise again. Um, uh, that's how I experience it anyway. I'm just trying <laughs> to get good noises, gang. I want weird nonverbal noises from my friends. And there's only one way to get them, and it's by DMing. Um, oh, my God. So true. Um, so uh, the uh, – God, how much of the human experience is just chasing noises? Um, but <laughs> – uh, I'm like, laughter is just a nonverbal noise. There's all these noise. I've just been chasing noises my whole life. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the point being, um, finding those magic moments, I think that um, this is really hard to offer advice for because it's so open-ended, right? What is a magic moment? Like these moments. I think that that what I can tell you is that those moments that feel magical, whether you can perceive them or not in like actual plays or other games you've been in, people laugh and think that the thing they're laughing at is what was funny. That's not true. What they're laughing at is the thing they're laughing at plus the thing right before it, which is what I used to say when I was coaching improv all the time, which which is not anything unfamiliar to people that understand setup and punchline, right? The punchline of the joke, yes, that's the part that people will laugh at, but if you just performed a comedy act, which was all of the punchlines divorced for all their setups, you will learn really excruciatingly that punchlines aren't funny. Punchlines <laughs> plus their setup are funny, right? In that same way, when you're thinking about the magic moment of 
a bit, again, the big gasp, the wonder, the excitement, the yeah, Nat 20, or the, my God, the NPC, or like, ooh, look at this new setting, this city, this plane of existence, this whatever we're seeing, it's so magical, right? Um, there was probably something before that that created tension that erupted into that moment. It will be very hard for the death of an NPC to be meaningful unless those PCs already loved that NPC. Mm. It will be very hard for that Nat 20 to feel incredible unless they already felt in danger. So these big explosive, every moment of, of explosive relief comes from a preceding moment of like, of tension and at times not really discomfort, but something similar to discomfort, right? So having, again, the nat 20 doesn't matter unless you feel in danger, right? So I think when you're, th when you're thinking like, I have to make these magic moments, maybe it's helpful to think about breaking it down into steps of, okay, you wanna get that magic moment. To get that, you have to be eliciting tension, suspense, uh, care, like, and I just mean raw care, like caring for an NPC or caring for a setting. Um, uh, uh, and I think, look at the things that in stories elicit those responses in you, right? What are the things that a character does or says, or what are the things that happen in a story that that like make you suddenly go, oh, I care about that person, right? Um, or like, oh, I, like what a cruel thing to do to somebody and suddenly you dislike someone. Like, there, it's very, they're, they're, anything how to put it. it and it's not always obvious either right like if you have a like i can if i narrate and i say you see a warlock walk up to the castle and he summons a horde of demons and sends the demons out to um rain terror on the countryside um uh i haven't done anything to make you hate that guy even though the act he just performed is incredibly evil. Like well, you we ring know, a baby's neck. And yeah, you ring a baby's neck. Hate right? him. Yeah. Yeah, you fucking hate him. And again, with that, uh, there's often again a, a bit of surprise or a twist or something. So you have that warlock in conversation, right? Um uh, uh I'm trying to think how to put this. There's often that that switch reveal. There's that that setup punchline relationship. These are not accurate words, but it, it's the relate. It's the shapes in space that I'm trying to think of, right? Of like, um, the warlock is gonna is gonna hurt somebody to make us know that the warlock is a bad guy, right? The warlock can go up and just hurt some random person, and we go, hey, a bad guy, right? <laughs> or the warlock can have a scene with a character. Better for a character to be like, okay, you see the warlock there, and a young apprentice walks up and goes, uh, you know, Master Grimm's skull. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to say that I, I find you extraordinary, and I've been studying your work all my life. You're one of the most incredible warlocks in the world. I, I adore you. And the warlock goes like, oh, well, you're very, of course. Well, I appreciate that. You're such a kind and studious young man. Come and yeah. walk with me. Yeah. And you, right? Do you see what I'm no! saying? Of like, yeah, That's, I get it now. Right? Of like, um, oh, he's going to hurt someone that likes him. And you like, but you have to, it's like, you got to set pins up before you knock them down. Right? Um, well, that was a beautiful answer. And I was like, I think I know what you're saying, but I'm not sure. And then you gave that example. 
And I'm so angry because I care so much for this apprentice in three short lines. <laughs> All right, my answer is not as verbose or as thoughtful as yours, but I have a shortcut. Ooh. And I'm a person that likes shortcuts. Relationships. Um, and then this is answering as a player. And something that uh, I think there is an ability to give this to your players as a keeper or GM, which is um, the relationships between the player characters. So when I come into a game, and I know it's going to be a one-shot or a two-shot, and I want to immediately feel invested in the game, I take a minute and just write a sentence on how I feel about each other character. And you can have them do it. this as an out-of-game like prep session, or you can say in-game, and you, of course, have this feeling for this person that is. How about you fill in the blank? And you open the door for them to create the relationship between each other, and then they'll be excited of like, ooh, let me get in a scene with that person because I know exactly my point of view. Because I think the difficulty with really getting invested and having those magic moments is them feeling themselves in their character. And an easy shortcut to that is give them an, an emotional investment in the same way you were describing Brennan, which is a more difficult, I mean, like is a more artful way um, versus like my shortcut as a player is like, just pick a feeling about a different player. I love that because you're right. What, what, look, what it all comes down to are stakes, right? Stakes are not to, not to be overly reductive, but like I, for me, stakes are what makes a game interesting. I love playing poker. The reason I love playing poker is you can win real money. And there's, there's something, there are stakes to this, right? With Dungeons and Dragons, the stakes are the degree to which you care, right? So, finding ways to elicit investments from your player in the world. Because if the only investment that's being made is the boilerplate investment, where it's like, well, you made the character, right? So it's your character. So why would you want your character to die? That's the same thing as loving your character, right? Like <laughs> your feeling of possessiveness over them is what, no, no, no. We don't just love characters because we're playing them. We have to love them in order to love them. And that means making investments. And I think building a relationship with your own character, like Becca said, building a relationship with other characters, be they other PCs, NPCs, it's you having an investment. Because to think of that thing, investment as well, it's taking something personal and tangible and putting it somewhere outside your body, right? I forget, mm. there's some piece of media that Ooh, had- That's good. Yeah, it's it lives somewhere else. There's I, there's I forget there's some father in a piece of media somewhere that just makes me cry. I forget oh. what it's from, but it's, someone says like, "What is it like having a kid?" And the guy says, "It's like having your heart live outside your body." Yes, like, I've seen that, and I don't know. I can't name it either. <laughs> I've fully forgotten what it's from. Right? Um, don't but, worry, the comments have it. The comments have it. Uh, hey, get in the comments. Um, and uh, what we love are are those moments where you see. Um, someone, because here's the thing, when you first start playing with people, they will be guarded. It's silly. You're playing make-believe. No one wants to look foolish. And you kind of have to body new players a little bit. You got to throw voices at them. You have to hit them with some sentimentality. You have to find story beats and tropes that will elicit emotion. Normally, some of the first emotions are just liking something because people, people can feel... Um, how do I put this? Like people can feel uh, that liking something isn't letting their guard down, but it's the first step to letting their guard down. When new players are at the table and they haven't like 
invested yet. They haven't gotten vulnerable yet. They're like, huh, my name is um, Trash Bag the Barbarian. I'm a, uh, like, I have a proficiency. And you're like, okay, fine, 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 right? Um, uh, it's like, oh, cool. You know, it's a joke to you. You're not taking it seriously yet. That's totally fine. You're new. Why would you know to invest yet, right? And then the first ways you get people's guard down, there's like an order of operations to it, where the first thing is for them to just like something, right? That's the first emotion that will come out. So you're like, you go to the tavern, there's a little goblin, and normally what people like is something either like pitiful or <laughs> they like something that's silly, or they like just something that's like a goblin comes up and is serving you a drink and goes, hello there, sir, I love your armor. Not like my armor, oh, it's rusty. And they go like, hey, this little funny guy, I like him, right? Or when just, you're in a tiny heist and a giant child comes up to you. <laughs> and a giant child comes up to you, exactly. And that first, thing, and they don't know it, but the, the seeds of chaos are already sown because by making them like something, they think like, well, I'm not like weeping at the table just because I like something. I can let that emotion out from behind the wall that I like something. But once you got that, you got the hook in the mouth and then you just pull and the rest of the emotions come out following that one. Um, you touched on something that means so much to me, which is the fear of looking foolish. Yeah. And I think that the greatest breakthroughs in my life and in performance, but mostly just in life, were the moments I was able to take a big leap towards looking foolish all the time and not having that care for it because um, I love to study clown and there's a clown teacher I really love taking workshops from and something he said is that when we're teenagers we build up this wall of cool where liking things isn't cool being vulnerable isn't cool and then the rest of our life we're just trying to backtrack that and go this is my favorite line of all time um, that a true clown is the version of yourself that no one ever said no to. And it was the bullies that said no, or it was a part of you that said no, that said, I look stupid if I do this. And finding that like, yes, version really involves looking like a fool and enjoying it. And, and that's what you want from your players is you want to invite them to look like a fool and be supported. I love that. That's so, so important. I have so many thoughts about that immediately, which is like, yes, and for me, as someone who has devoted my entire life to being uncool, I can't recommend <laughs> it. Truly, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, uh, my favorite song lyric of all, the thing that I feel is like, because I feel like someone, I love music, but I feel like when you read a lot of song lyrics, things that sound really beautiful songs, sometimes you read them and you're like, eh, it's a little bit less profound when you read it. Um, but one exception to that rule is, um, line from Hey Jude. My dad was a huge Beatles fan. I'd listen to Beatles Same. all the time growing up. Um, uh, I heard it when I was a teenager when I was having a really hard time. I was homeschooled. Life was not going old Brennan Lee Mulligan's way. Um, and uh, there's a line in Hey Jude where he says, for well you know that it's a fool who plays it cool by making his world a little colder. Uh, Oof. Oof. It's okay. the most profound piece of musical advice I know about. I think, and I just think about that all the time. Of like, yep, that's it. Like, because that that what that coolness is about is about um, decreasing vulnerability by creating detachment. Um, there's a there's a whole complex series of psychological essays on the subject. Here's an interesting thing about cool. I'm going on a true just brain spree right now. It's great. Did you know that? 
um, there are many, many languages other than English whose word for um, their, whose word for cool is also related in their language to the concept of low temperature, that that's not an accident in English, oh. that there is literally some correlation between the idea of chilliness, of coldness, and what we see as, as a like socially desirable aloofness, right? Wow. And it, isn't that fucking cool? And people think it could be because of body. That is hot, of, in fact. That is hot, in fact, right? But there is something, but there's something to that that's very interesting of like, is it related to the idea of like, you heat up as your blood pressure rises and you get you get more inflamed and you get, more, there's like a bunch of different theories about why that might be, but it's an interesting concept. Um, yeah, unruffled seems like a desirable trade. And when you're ruffled and you're flushed, uh, it's not necessarily a great feeling unless you turn it into one. Oh, and right. quickly, I just want to credit Christopher Bayes, who is the clown teacher that um, the, the, I stole the quote from, and he has a book on clowning, if anyone's interested. Hell yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Go check out Christopher Bayes' book on clowning. Uh, I think there's so much freedom that comes from not caring about or caring to be cool. And again, there's a certain part of me that I think engages in a, a kind of like, I think I just realized at a certain point when I was a kid of like, oh, there's no coming back. Like I can see how hard the cool kids are working at being cool. Like the, the safety that coolness would provide, I can't achieve, I'll never get there. So. We gotta just punch through. We, it's like, you're so deep in the hole of uncoolness at that point that you're like, keep digging, we'll come out the other side. Um, uh, but that's beautiful. See, I was the opposite. I was a cool kid, but in the sense of like a punk didn't care about anything rebel cool kid, which dug me into that hole and I just stopped there. I just laid in that hole of like, nope, this is what cool gets me. And really going to acting school started to break down that barrier of, of wanting to look good. Uh, but yeah. to be a good actor, a good performer, you have to be ready to be ugly in all the senses of the word. Oh, it's heartbreaking. As like again, as someone who taught a lot of improv, watching people who put, watching people who would come into class with, not to have like a sad metaphor, but like truly beautiful walls. Be like, <sighs> damn, my friend, you put a lot of work into these. These are, <laughs> these are great. Like these will hold back all kinds of emotions. I bet the world's totally numb to you, and you never feel scared or sad. That's that's rad, man. We gotta totally destroy these for you to be funny or relatable at all. We gotta like, we have to demolish these. Um, uh, amen. amen. Um, uh, uh, but I, I love that. Um, uh, this was, this question really, uh, was, I'm trying to think of anything else. We're talking about coolness. We're talking about- uh, uh, Clowns, the, foolish. Clowns, foolish. Um, going back through the Hey Jude. Hey Jude. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, yes, I think that that is really what it comes down to is like feeling, allowing yourself to feel foolish. Um, and again, there's a certain degree of, of fatalism I have that, that for me is like uh, really significant in my life of providing like strength and comfort, which is that fatalism of like the thing you're doing to prevent harm won't prevent harm and it's harming you right now. Like mm -hmm. seeing the futility in those measures to self-preserve like you know like oh like you're gonna you're gonna try to never look foolish well 
not only is that not going to work, you will look foolish in the future, but you also kind of look foolish right now for doing that. Like it's, yeah. it's like completely self-defeating. Um, yeah. Moving on to more questions. That, that got to, I love that question. That got us to a very uh, prof like profound place. Um, uh, oh, this feels like a great one as well. Oh, this one's from uh, uh, Thaliel. Thaliel. Um, a very elven name. Um, Mike, uh, thanks, Faleo. Uh My question is, how do inspire- He almost got you. Sorry, that was the first that you always think the question asker. Always his elvish name almost distracted you. <laughs> almost did, I was like, Faleel. How long <laughs> have you traveled these realms, Faleel? Um My question is, how to inspire creativity and whimsy in a campaign that feels like it's losing its spark? Whenever my friends start a new campaign, the initial premise seems fun to explore, but it quickly falls flat as time goes on and players plus DM have difficulty figuring out how to keep it fun. I was thinking of giving the DM some ideas, but I think that would be metagaming and the DM would be unable to use my ideas because I said them out loud. I love your shows so much because of the spontaneous and fun improvisation y'all come up with. I wish I and my friends had those same skills as well. We'd love to go to an improv class session, but COVID and money are an issue. Thank you so much for your words of wisdom. Heart, heart, heart. Faleo, a, a delightful question and we're sending lots of love to you and I hear you. Um, how to inspire fun and whimsy. Um, Spend way too much money on improv classes. Just yeah. do it. Go broke. No, just kidding. Uh, just no, kidding. No, no, no. Um, well, uh, that's, an, that's an excellent question. And again, what I would say is, um, and there may be multiple answers here because within within the question it says uh, you know like it quickly falls flat as time goes on and players plus DM have difficulties figuring out how to keep it fun. Um, there are a lot of reasons that we can experience doldrums in any kind of social interaction, right? I mean that's one of the horrifying things is you like uh, you know you can have I, I remember just watching this documentary that was a, sort of a dating documentary and watching people all of whom were lovely people who wanted to go find love going on dates and not figuring out how to talk to each other and and connect right the best of intentions and lovely people can set out to tell an amazing story and find for a lot of reasons like a lack of chemistry a lack of inspiration a lack of whimsy um so without knowing the particulars of your group, I don't know specifically how to answer or address your exact question. Like if I was watching you as your improv teacher, I would wanna see the scene you were doing because there are a lot of things that could be causing this, right? Um, on the one hand, there could be a lack of whimsy just from like incompatibility in play styles between players. If like the DM is trying to tell a very dark and epic story and the players are trying to have fun and goof around, that could be a compatibility issue or it could be something as simple as everyone's judging their choices too much, which is where a lot of a lot of um, halting and ruts can come from. Like especially watching improv scenes, just watching moments like it does happen in improv classes where you watch people literally just stop talking and turn to look at the teacher and go, <laughs> "I don't know what to do next." Right? Um, uh, that happens. Um, and when it happens, the, the answer is always you're thinking too hard and you're judging yourself too much, right? Um, there's a great old expression of, of like, if you're going through hell, keep going. 
And that's true of, of long-running games as well. Not every session is going to be your best session. Not every scene is going to be dynamite banter flashing back and forth. Um, you know, like, the way averages work is, like, half of the improv scenes I've done have been above the average level of funny. And that means half the improv scenes I've done have been below average funny, right? Like you're not always doing, you're not doing your best work most of the time by definition. Um, that's why special moments are special. Uh, so what I would say is, uh, be careful about judging your choices too much and um, don't be self-critical if it feels like, oh, I'm improvising through a scene, I'm having my character do something, we're in a fight, we're in a role play scene, we're, we're exploring something and the spark's not there, that judgment can sometimes breed that doldrum you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then maybe the last thing I would say there would be like, um, well, I have one other thing I wanna say about the idea of, of premise, which is, this might not be what your question is about, so I apologize if this is getting off track, but I just find it interesting that you used the you used this phrase of, the initial premise seems fun to explore, but it quickly falls flat as time goes on. Now what's interesting, the only reason I wanna draw my attention to that, and I don't know that this is what you're doing, but the only thing I wanna draw attention to is premises are not where fun comes from. Um, mm -hmm. uh, premises are not where fun comes from. Uh, premises are overrated by beginning writers and storytellers across every medium in the world. A premise is overrated. People are like, I have a story that takes place in a city on the inside of a cup of coffee. Whoa, oh, how Pretty good. Pretty and good. Like, are you using that? Can I take that? <laughs> take it because it's nothing. <laughs> by all means, take it. Okay. Okay, <laughs> cut to a year later, Becca's coffee topless is the, winning the top in the charts. Um, <laughs> no, winning an Emmy. Um, what I mean by that is this, right? There's a great line Robert McKee uses in this book called Story, where he says, stories are not about their premises, they're about their conclusions, right? Um, uh, which is really great and true, because I think too many people kick off a thing being like, think about this premise, right? Um, but again, what you should be focusing on is like your player characters and their quest, which is often phrased as a, a want or a need. There is some deficit, there's a hole in the heart of the heroes that they need to fill because it's not full right now. And they are going to be magnetically drawn forward through the story in pursuit of the, of the absence of the thing they don't have, right? Um, because I could tell you this this is a campaign that takes place in a cup of coffee and we start session one and you're like, my character is a chunk of donut. <laughs> and you're like, uh, my character is a bit is a plastic stirring straw and he's a visit, he's actually a wizard because he's figuring out coffee magic. And then we start and I'm like, cool. Um so you're in the cup. <laughs> um you're in the you you're 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 getting in there and uh, like a premise is nothing. Like, like uh, some like I would play any day in completely bog standard high fantasy, no gilding on the edge of the painting setting. If the DM was like, 
I have taken your character's deepest desires and the things about them that are part of their character arc and woven it into a devilish plot at the heart of this world that you will have to chase over time to do X, Y, Z, right? That game is going to be a lot better. So I get, I would say that like premise can't sustain you long-term. It's fun to talk about, but it's not a long-term solution. Um, but I don't know if that was your question or not. Uh, Becca, uh, what do you yeah. think about whimsy and fun? How to bring the whimsy and fun. I love I love this. This is a very difficult question. And I was serious that improv classes do help, but we all know that. Um, you know, quickly want to touch on, Brendan, you said something that really resonated with me as someone who has a problem with perfectionism, that you can't always do your best work. That's something I'm going to carry with me because that is, by definition, you cannot do it. Uh, so you just have to keep doing. Okay. So in terms of injecting whimsy and fun and having these ideas, but not wanting to, not even just your DM can't use your ideas because then you'll know, but you don't want to step on them feeling like they have control of the game. But I think when I play with people who are also GMs as players, there is this magical thing that people can do where you're you're kind of like coloring the world in a way that is how a GM might also color it, but it, it's helpful because you're not describing anything that's not within your realm as the player. You're also allowed to inject things or ask permission permission to inject things like. Could there be maybe um, some sort of magical rock here that I could rub and ask it if it will deliver me? Uh, you know, don't be afraid to ask um, because preparing ahead of time with the GM, sending them a list of ideas, no, no. But in game saying, what if there's this? Then all they have to do is say yes. And then they can add on to it. And, and, there's also this idea in improv, someone who's taken many classes and never taught any, but, uh, oh, I, I, I've learned some terms and I love the idea of follow the fun. So yeah. think about, you're saying it fizzles out, but what were the most fun moments for your group? And maybe before a session saying, do you guys mind if I try something, if you want to go along with me, if I just want to, if we're having a fun moment, can we sit in it for a little longer? And maybe part of what's feeling, um, like I know my favorite part is really digging into the role play aspect and really like being in dialogue for an uncomfortably long time with the bartender in the tavern when it's yeah. like, this has nothing to do with the adventure, but I'm having fun because uh, neither of us have any idea where this conversation is going. And sometimes the funniest moments happen because you have to make something up and you don't know the answer and you say something ridiculous. That's like, okay, now that's canon. <laughs> You've got to be able to surprise yourself. You've got to be able to surprise yourself, to follow the fun. Your own psyche has the, like the rabbit hole to wonderland in it. Right. Um, Part of what improv's magic really is all about is that you you have this, you know, to use another different rabbit metaphor. Whoo, we makes a lot of metaphors here on the VOD. Um, <laughs> uh, but like a magician's hat, right? Like you're reaching in there to pull stuff out and you're doing it over and over and over again so, so, so fast. And you really get to know yourself because you end up going like, I am in deep concert with my subconscious because I don't have time to like think through a lot of these choices. These are just like barreling out of the gate. Um, and I think that there's a lot to be said for following the fun, as you said, and 
allowing yourself to, you know, like if, especially if your your worry is about your, and you're talking about like giving your DM ideas. I don't know that that like I don't know that the thing that's going to save the game is like a handful of ideas that are more fun than what your DM has planned, right? Because it's like, at the end of the day, your DM burns through those ideas. Are you going to give the DM three more at the end of that? Also, by the way, if you keep having good ideas for adventures, uh, maybe you maybe you hop behind the screen, pal. Um, so something to consider. Um, uh, I'm sure your friend would love a chance to play. Um, and uh, again, I will say that like, um, what needs to happen for this to pick up is, again, lack of judgment, free form associating, the ability to kind of like not judge your choices in the moment and to go with what feels fun. Um, uh, and, it, and maybe also like, again, I can't be sure if this is what's going on at your table, but not treating Dungeons and Dragons as a thing that is inherently fun. There is no game in the world that is inherently fun. It's fun if you're enjoying it, right? Um, uh, and D&D is expressly that. So not thinking about D&D is like, well, they made this module, we're going to run it, and if we successfully complete the Dungeon of the Mad Mage, we will, ipso facto, have had a good time. No, this is a, like, this is a sandbox. If you build a castle, then you're having fun. But but so make sure that you are not passively consuming this. These games don't work passively. You need to be getting in touch with your inner creativity and not judging the choices you're making in order for this sandbox to come to life. Ooh, I love that. Oh, just quick, quick one more piggyback thought. Yeah. Um, it's not just the GM's game. It's everyone's game. Yeah, yeah, you're all equally contributing. And if you're making your GM do all the heavy lifting, that's a little too much pressure on them. Help them yes. out and encourage the other players to help them out. I totally agree. And let me also, I'll, I'll also walk back what I said before of, you. I don't think you need to give your DM uh, adventure ideas, but absolutely give your DM ideas about what your character is interested in doing to give them prep time. Be like, my character is interested in these storm giants you mentioned. She wants to go to the far north and find these storm giants. That kind of stuff is excellent because I have always appreciated knowing what my players wanted to do. Because good lord, it's easier to plan an adventure when you know that your PCs are already going to want to go on it. Um, hell yeah. What oh, yeah. an incredible 90 minutes of wonderful conversation and advice. Becca Scott, what a delight, a pleasure, and an honor to have you today. I, you stopped that. The pleasure was all mine, Brennan Lee Mulligan. Uh, 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 a true joy. Uh, everyone, go check out Becca uh, and all of her incredible streams, games, actual plays. Uh, please go check her out right away. This has been Adventuring Academy. We have loved talking uh, and answering your questions. Thank you so much, and we will catch you next week. Later! <sighs>